Uh, flip over there to, to page 10, and you should find the words to uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And we are uh, back in Romans now for uh, several weeks. We're going to look at the middle section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. And if um, this is your first time with us, we, we are uh, working our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans and we're, we're using them as conversation partners to help us to understand how uh, the whole Bible fits together and that it's really one big story. And even though our Bibles are broken up into two testaments, what I most want you to see is that the, that the division there is really kind of artificial, that the two big sections of the Bible are so interlinked and interwoven that you cannot understand the one without the other. And we're we're using these two hugely important books in the Bible to help us to see the the riches of of the tapestry, if you will, of this story, the fabric of the story of Scripture and how it it weaves together. And um, you may not remember this, but when we've been looking at the first eight chapters, one of the ways I try to describe Um, the whole book of Romans is to think of it as this is God's good news for the whole world. And that becomes especially important as we enter into Romans 9 through 11. And here's why. If we were to go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, sort of the theme verse for the whole letter, Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And why does he put it like that? Well, first of all, that verse, if you think about it, is really an echo of what God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. When God said to Abraham, it is through your offspring, through your family, through the people I'm going to create out of you, Abraham, that I will bless the nations. In other words, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And Paul called that announcement to Abraham as God preaching the gospel to Abraham, which you've heard me say hopefully several times already as we've looked at Genesis. But why does Paul here pick up that idea and talk about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile? Now, um, before we really unpack that question, I do want you to understand that these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, uh, create all kinds of debate and discussion among Bible teachers and, and commentators about what to do with them. Some, some say that these, these chapters are simply a puzzle between the good news of 1 through 8 and the application of 12 through 16. Others say that uh, chapters 9 through 11 really aren't that relevant at all to the letter. They're, they're more or less a parenthesis or Uh, an excursus, something that's not really that relevant. Others go to the other end of the spectrum and say that these three chapters are the heart of Romans, the most important part, 
for which chapters 1 through 8 are just merely introduction and 12 through 16 are just a conclusion. But I don't really want to bog you down or, or me down into all those details. What I want you to think about is to think about these chapters as helping us to understand how the good news that Paul has been proclaiming in chapters 1 through 8 are for the Jew first and for the Gentile. In other words, the good news that we see in this, in this book is for the whole world. But that does raise a question. It raises a question that Paul addresses here, and it's, in particular, it's this. What does Paul make of the unbelief of his own people, of his own Jewish brothers and sisters? In other words, what do you make of the opposition that Jesus faced, that Paul faced, even the denial and rejection of this good news? And even how, how do you make sense of unbelief in general? How do we explain that? And so here's what I want us to think about. That, that might seem kind of an irrelevant question um, as we come to these chapters. But what, what I want you to also see is that what Paul does in these three chapters, he really does unpack the problem of unbelief for everyone. And it helps us to understand why does that happen? How does God respond to it? Does it make sense? And when we discover it, what do we do with it? And so we're going to begin looking here at Romans chapter 9, 1 through 13. And this chapter in particular attempts to answer this question of the problem of unbelief of the Jewish people. And in particular, I have in view here what, um, think of yourself in the first century, Paul is proclaiming the good news, himself a Jew, himself at one point adamantly opposed to this good news, and Jesus broke into his life. What, what does he do here? So I, what I want you to see, and I'm going to read the, us the passage, is we're going to look at two points from this passage. First of all, Paul's anguish over the unbelief of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And then secondly, we're going to look at how Paul helps us to understand what is true Israel. What does it mean to be a true Israelite? Okay, those will be our two points. But first, let me read Romans 9, 1 through 13, and we'll take a look at these uh, two points from this passage. This is Paul. He's, he's speaking. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall, be, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here are two points. The the anguish of Paul in verses 1 through 5 and the meaning of true Israel in verses 6 through 13. So first, let's look here in verses 1 through 5. I, I just want you to see, this is after Paul has just unfolded for us in the first eight chapters the riches of the gospel, the free grace of God, that everything the Old Testament has, has been uh, waiting for and pointing toward has now come. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus. And so Paul then addresses this very emotional question that goes very deep into his own life. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And so much so, he says in verse 3, that if it would make any difference, I would, I would consider myself to be cut off so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could see and believe that they are part of this beautiful story that leads to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who is the Savior of the Jew first and also the Gentile. I want you to see here how profound this is for Paul, how much he loves people. It's worth pausing because in Acts chapter 14, where Luke tells of Paul's missionary journeys, Paul is stoned by Jews who are from Antioch and Iconium. And then later in chapter 17, just to mention two, op- two situations here, the Jews stir up opposition against Paul and all that he's trying to do. And yet, in the face of that, Paul is, has deep sorrow and love for these people. And it's worth asking, Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, how and where does this love for his people come from? Time and again, Paul tells us his love for people comes from how deeply God has loved him. So at the very beginning here, how does Paul lead us in responding to unbelief? Paul does not lead in responding to unbelief in people's lives with self-righteous indignation. Or they ought to know better. Or they're too far gone. Paul responds to unbelief with deep sorrow, even to the point of of, of his willingness to suffer in the place of this people 
who've yet to grasp the good news that he preaches. And why is he so troubled? Look here in verse 4 and verse 5, how he unfolds the wealth of spiritual privileges. He says, they are Israelites. They be- to them belongs the adoption. In other words, that God has said to the Israelite people, you are family to me. You are my sons and my daughters. Where God has, Paul says that belongs, that the adoption belongs to them, the glory belongs to them. Most likely here Paul has in view the, the ways in which God revealed his glory to his people after he had brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus at Mount Sinai. Uh, the covenants belong to them. The law belongs to them. The worship belongs to them. The promises belong to them. The patriarchs, and even from their race, Jesus comes from their heritage, from their lineage, which we've, we've looked at here at Red Mountain before as we've looked at um, the genealogies of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew and Luke. And here Paul is so troubled because of all of the riches himself and his Jewish friends have received and have been given that root them in this rich, beautiful story of the scriptures, of God's promise to bless the nations through these people. And his, his, his concern and his anguish, is, it's akin to the child who is given every opportunity, every advantage to make good on, on those opportunities and perhaps their circumstances and their abilities and either on the one hand they squander those and uh, don't make good use of them or perhaps they use them as a badge of uh, being better than other people. Look at all these things I have and you don't. Or as seen, we see many times in the Bible, a child taking those privileges, those opportunities, and using them for ends that they were never intended to be used. And this, for Paul, is deeply distressing. But there's a question that comes out of Paul's anguish that, that we need to look at, that uh, all of chapter 9 uh, really helps us to understand. But in particular, the question we're going to look at this morning is, if Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters have all these privileges that have been unfolding over millennia, that again and again reveal God's commitment to his people, his desire to have a relationship with them, his promises to be with them, to go with them wherever they go, to bring them back, to, to do good to them despite their rebellion and their indifference. If that's the case, and yet they don't believe, does that mean that God's word has failed? Does that mean that all these privileges, all these promises really have failed, that they're powerless? And that brings us to the second point here in verses 6 to 13 about we need to understand from Paul what 
what is true Israel? What does it mean to truly be an Israelite? And if we look here, why is the answer that Paul gives to the question, has God's word failed? Why is his answer such an emphatic no? Look in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is insistent that the response, even of those who have had all of these privileges, despite the negative reaction, in no way does it mean that God's word has failed. And why does he say that? Look again here in verse 6. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Paul has been preparing us for this earlier in Romans chapter 2. He says this. He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. Now, how does he make this argument? How does he help us understand what is a true Israelite? Verse 7, he says, not all, children of Abra- not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And what happens here in verse um, 8 through 13, Paul gives us two proofs to help us to understand why it is that God's word has not failed. He starts here with the story of Abraham and Isaac. I hope you're seeing here too why uh, we are, we're using Genesis and Romans as conversation partners. Listen to what he says. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so Paul here in verses 9 to 10, really in verse 9, he tells us about the story of Abraham and Sarah. And if you remember this story, Abraham and Sarah were childless for a long time. And yet God had said, it'd be through your offspring that I am going to bless the nations. And Abraham and Sarah start to get nervous. And back in chapter 16, you can go back uh, and look at that, Abraham and Sarah, especially Sarah, start to strategize. We don't think God's word is going to come true. But we, we have to have children. We need some way to carry on this situation. And here, what God is helping us to see is that there is a huge contrast that God's word goes forward by way of promise, not by way of human strategizing and scheming. And so first of all, what God tells us to see here is that what makes God's word come to pass, what makes it powerful, is his promise. His commitment to what he has said he will do. But then secondly, the second proof he gives brings into view the story of Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons, their two twins, Esau and Jacob. So first what I wanted you to see here is that 
The reason that Paul gives for what does it mean to belong to Israel, first of all, isn't that you're necessarily physically descended from Abraham, but that like Abraham, you believe God. That's it. That you believe his word. But secondly, that you rest in God's purpose. Notice what he says here. He says also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, what, what's happening in this proof that Paul is giving? Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that to be a true Israelite is to believe and to trust that God's purpose is not based on human effort. It's not based on the way that we ordinarily think things ought to work. That's what's being said here in verse 12 when Paul, quoting back from Genesis chapter 25, the older will serve the younger. What's God doing when he says that? God's purposes, the way God works in this world, upends the expected order of things. And here, when he's describing that God's purpose of election might continue, notice this is not about picking based on who's most deserving. In fact, the very story here says, not because of works, God's choosing, God's calling, his electing grace is the best news you could ever hear. And why is that? It's because God's purposes to redeem sinners are not based on our deserving of it. But what it's based on is God upending that whole way of thinking about your life. The gospel is all about God saying, there is another way for you to thrive and to live and to have joy and purpose and meaning that doesn't depend on you and what you deserve. And if you've been with us the past weeks looking at the story of Jacob, that is one of the resounding messages of that story. That God commits to liars and deceivers and schemers and he says, I am with you, I will be with you wherever you go, and I will bring you home. So what does it mean to be a true Israelite? Why is Paul in such anguish over his brothers and sisters? It's not because they weren't born into the right family. They were. What causes Paul such anguish over their unbelief is they will not believe the good news that their family story tells. And that is on offer to them. In Jesus. So that Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 
He says, know this, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. That is a crucial thing to understand as we make our way through the rest of Romans 9 through 11. Because there are, very, there are some very difficult questions, particularly often folks want to know, well, what does this mean about Israel today? And that's a very complicated question because you get in the geopolitical stuff, the nation of Israel as it was understood to be back in the first century and before is a very different landscape today. And without dismissing those you know, important questions, the most important thing to understand to be a true Israelite is that you believe. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, that makes sense when you remember from Genesis chapter 15, God appears to, J- to, to Abraham and Abraham and Sarah are very distressed. Abraham says to God, but you have not given me any son. I have no children. How on earth is this promise supposed to come to pass? And God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham believes God, and the the passage says, and God counted it to him as righteousness. To be a son of Abraham, to be a true Israelite, means that you believe in God's word. Now, this is why in the New Testament, there is so much tension over Jew and Gentile interaction. Because the Bible never was meant to be for one people group. What this means is everyone who believes in the gospel is a true Jew, is a true Israelite. Now, here's a question for you. I want you to think about if that's the case, this whole story hinges on faith. The absolute necessity of you, of your own volition, believing the gospel. That is true today. It was true in Paul's day. And it was true in Abraham's day. Faith in God and his purposes and his savior has always been the way that you enter in to the good news and the privileges of of the story of the Bible. But does that make work, faith, the one work that you have to muster up and you have to get right in order to get in on this story? This is really important because the good news of the gospel to you as you live your life, is not just believe more. Just believe better. That's actually not at all what faith is. Faith is simply you admitting, I cannot do this on my own. Faith is saying, I am relinquishing all trust and confidence in myself and I am going to put it all 
in Jesus. That you are putting all your eggs in that basket. As one writer put it, J.C. Ryle, he's um, from the 1800s, he's a, an Anglican writer, and, and he, he put and described true faith like this. I, I, I've, I have not been able to find a better way of um, trying to put in front of you how faith can be both an activity and at the very same time something you can't accomplish. He says, true faith is but laying hold of a Savior's hand, leaning on a husband's arm, and receiving a physician's medicine. Faith brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful soul. It gives nothing. It contributes nothing. It pays nothing. It performs nothing. It only receives, takes, grasps, and embraces the glory, glorious gifts of God, which Christ bestows, and by renewed daily acts, enjoys that gift. Do you hear that? Faith is you receiving all of these spiritual privileges that we've been talking about from Romans 1 through 8. And here's Paul's great concern particularly in in the context here for his Jewish brothers and sisters, but it's also a great concern for us. Paul's great concern is that spiritual privileges are not badges of pride. They are gifts of life and hope that bring you to Jesus. Everything about this story puts in front of us the gifts of God to sinners who don't deserve it whether they be Jew or Gentile. And here's what I want you to think about as we close. Where do you get this kind of faith to be a true Israelite? An Israelite, not according to the flesh, but according to promise. Well, think of it like this. You find this faith in Christ. What do I mean by that? Think about Jesus for a moment. He is the Messiah who, according to the flesh, came from the patriarchs. But also, Jesus, he gave up all of his privileges. He didn't account quality with God something to hold on to and to keep. But he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. That in Jesus, what you see is God in the flesh relinquishing all the privileges, all the honor that he rightly deserves. And he pays the penalty and the cost that he does not deserve. But we do. And here's why. So that you would receive all the privileges that belong to him. He wants you to have those privileges. To know yourself to be forgiven. To know that there is no amount of sin that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's where Romans 8 ends. 
to know that you belong to him, that he belongs to you, that you're family. To know that the shame that you live with, the guilt that continues, can actually begin to lose its hold on you through daily trusting in Christ. To know that though each of us is going to die, that there is life beyond this life. That you have a destiny in front of you that you and I can't even imagine yet. That there are better things yet to come. Jesus wants you to know all those things in the depths of your being. Where do you get this kind of faith? You get this kind of faith by looking to Jesus. So here's the question I want to leave with you. In light of that, I hope, good news of this passage is this question. How are you doing living out of and embracing the spiritual privileges that are yours in the gospel? Are you indifferent to them? Are they a badge of some kind in your life? Like I have these and and I'm good to go. Um, I don't really have to think about this anymore. Are they privileges that you don't know how to use, maybe? Uh, How are you doing? Are you making use? In other words, are you exercising your faith in the way that J.C. Rowell talks about exercising your faith? Are you receiving and resting on Christ? That's what I want you to think about as we walk through these chapters and we we wrestle with this question of what does it mean to be the people of God? What it means to be the people of God is that we trust Him. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. And yet... Jesus had to die and rise again in order to give us the resources we need to do that very simple yet radically life-changing thing. So let's ask him for help to do that. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage. We give you thanks for these words. And we pray that um, as we wrestle with these chapters in Romans, that you would help us, that you would give us grace to believe the good news of the gospel and to swim around in and to delight in the privileges that we find on every page of the Bible as they lead us to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.